Hello, this is Kalia in 2020. What you are about to hear is the remastered version of the episode that you clicked on. Why? Well, it turns out that when I started this podcast, I got some incorrect information regarding copyright law and fair use policy. After nearly two years of making content, this oversight was brought to my attention. There was mild panic, lots of guilt, and then a few fervent nights doing research. It seems we might exist in this gray, nebulous area of fair use for critique and commentary, and thus our use of a teeny tiny bit of the music from the soundtracks of the movies that we are critiquing and commenting on might be allowable. But then again, it might not. So a few things. One, I don't want to be a jerk, even accidentally. Two, I think it's important to acknowledge when you mess up. But three, and this is key, I think acknowledging your mess up isn't enough. You have to rectify the situation if possible. And guess what? It's totally possible to go back into these old episodes and clip out the maybe legal, maybe just slightly crappy bit of audio and replace it with a bit of music created just for me by the same composer and performer who made us our theme music, which is what I'm going to do. And since I can't help but tinker just a smidge, I might clean up a teeny tiny bit of audio noise while I'm in there. I mean, I've learned a lot over the last two years, and who knows, you might be stumbling upon this podcast feed years from now. So why should your present day ears be punished? Because way back in time, I hadn't yet found the noise reduction button. Anyway, without further ado, here is the podcast you came here for. Just slightly better. Thanks for listening. It's the Pages of Popcorns Podcast. Special guest. Special guest. talk, so you better damn well listen. Welcome to Pages and Popcorn Podcast, the podcast where I, Kalia, a huge book nerd, talk about movies that are based on books. Today I am joined by Ryan, but first I want to remind you that of all the ways you can get in touch with us on the interwebs. You are welcome to email us at pagesandpopcornpodcast at gmail.com, as well as finding us on Facebook and Twitter, although to be honest, I don't use Twitter. And of course, we have a patron, so pagesandpopcornpodcast at patreon.com is where you can also support the show and our website, where you can find show notes, as well as information about upcoming episodes, all kinds of resources. You can also contact us by emailing us at pagesandpopcornpodcast at gmail.com. Today we will be discussing Black Hawk Down, the 1999 nonfiction book by journalist Mark Bowden about the U.S. military's 1993 raid in Mogadishu. This book was adapted in 2001 and made into a film by the same name, which was produced and directed by Ridley Scott from a screenplay by Ken Nolan. Before we do the recap, let's say hi to Ryan. Hi, Ryan. Hello there. Hi. Would you like to introduce yourself to the people? Well, you already know my name is Ryan. I was a corporal in the Marine Corps, and I have spent some time in Iraq and Kuwait. Uh, it was a while ago now, of course, but uh, it was it left an impression. And for those of you who listened to our last episode where I talked to Catherine, who was in the same graduating class from that I was in, uh, Ryan was also in the same graduating year and class that I was in. This is apparently um, high school reunion month at the Pages and Popcorn podcast. So like me, Ryan graduated in California in 1998. You enlisted right after high school? 
Yes, uh, I left for Marine Corps boot camp four days after we graduated. Very cool. Okay. Well, I will do my best to get all the nomenclature correct, and uh, you can tell me if I say anything wrong. So Black Hawk Down, A Story of Modern War, is the 1999 book by journalist Mark Bowden. Like I said, non-fictional account of the Battle of Mogadishu in Somalia, which resulted in the U.S. forces attempt to capture the two lieutenants of Mohammed Fahar Adid, a warlord who oppressed the Somali people and stole their humanitarian aids. Bowden originally published a 29-part investigation of the mission in the Philadelphia Inquirer and later expanded it into Black Hawk Down, the book. In 1992, Somalia's famine and civil war are worsening, the UN sends U.S. troops into Somalia to help combat the warlords who are stealing humanitarian aid. Adid becomes the focus of the U.S. military efforts, but he manages to evade capture for so long that the U.S. troops begin to look like the occupying force rather than the temporary aid unit. The best chance to capture Adid's leadership comes on October 3, 1993. During daylight hours, a team of Rangers and Delta Force operators arrive at the city of Mogadishu in helicopters and descend on ropes outside the target house where Adid's men are holding a meeting. The Delta men are there to secure the prisoners, while the Rangers will set up four points as a perimeter. One set of Rangers gets thrown off their mark when one of the men roping down from the helicopters falls and is badly injured. So now that group isn't fully able to keep their corner and is trying to get the injured man to the target house. Thousands of Somalis rush to the scene and open fire on the Americans encircling them. And then, a rocket-propelled grenade, an RPG, shoots down a Black Hawk helicopter. Now there is a target house without a full perimeter and a crash site. Medical teams rush to the crash site where one of the pilots is not only dead, but his body is super, super trapped. And then another Black Hawk is shot down. Now there are two crash sites. A convoy of heavy vehicles meant to transport the prisoners away from the target house is surrounded and bogged down in heavy fighting. Due to delays in communication and the Somalia militia, they are literally driving around in circles for hours and cannot get to either of the crash sites or the target house. They take heavy casualties but eventually return to base. A new convoy sets out but it also can't reach either crash site. At crash site 1 with the trapped pilot, the work of cutting him out is incredibly long, but thankfully all of the chalk perimeters have managed to more or less coalesce in that same area. At crash site two, there's no medical team. Only a few survivors and thousands of Somalian people, militia, are rushing in. So two Delta guys go down to help. They are almost immediately killed by the mobs. One pilot, Durant, survives for the attack and is taken prisoner. The guys in the other part of the city are in a mishmash of Rangers and Delta forces, and it takes them a very long time to link up. They take heavy damages and pretty much have to dig in as night falls. For the next several hours, the U.S. troops fight for their lives against thousands of Somali militiamen. In the early morning hours of October 4th, the U.S. leadership finally gets a new rescue convoy, comprised of Malaysian and Pakistani forces, to the crash site. However, there are not enough seats for everyone on the convoy, and many of the men must run out of the city on foot, still fighting. They don't actually run out of the city, I'm sorry, that was a typo. They run to a, an amphitheater that was controlled by the Pakistani uh, side. There were 19 deaths, including 18 American soldiers who died in the battle. 75 sustained injuries. The estimates vary, but the U.S. forces kill at least 500 Somalis and injure around 1,000. The captured pilot Durant is returned a few weeks later, and Abdid eventually is killed and replaced. Bowden's book is a rapid-fire account of the frantic battle. Chapters are brief, vivid accounts from the viewpoints of many, many characters on each side of the conflict. Bowden also uses the knowledge of various characters to explain the background of the political realities in Somalia, as well as the involvement of the U.S. military and the United Nations. So that's the book. 
The movie stays very true to form. There are a few characters renamed or merged together, but the beats of the narrative structure are all there. The film is shot in a realistic fashion that does not glorify war. There are really no heroics of flag-waving, fist-bumping notes of machoism. Instead, we get to see how the men actually struggle, how they're human and they're afraid. They don't always make the best decisions, but they try really hard. The idea of rank and chain of command is key, as is the cardinal rule that you never leave a man behind. And then I have a lot of key differences and similarities that I want to talk to. But basically, the movie was an adaptation of the book. I mean, I won't say shot for shot, but it was very, very, very close in keeping with the book and the movie. So before we get into our key differences and similarities and then themes um, and such, how did you do you remember hearing about this when it happened, Ryan, in 1993? I was 12. I think you were 12. Or maybe 13. Yeah, I'm a few <laughs> weeks older than you. Yeah, uh, I don't remember hearing about this at the time, actually. I was not aware of the Battle of Mogadishu until years later, uh, 1999, actually. My first awareness of the Battle of Mogadishu came uh, in my public speaking class at West Valley College. Uh, one of my classmates, we, one of our assignments was to uh, give a, a speech, you know, a short speech, you know, five to seven minutes on a life-changing event. And one of my classmates talked about a battle that he was in and how you know, 90% of his unit were injured or even killed. And this, you know, they were all in it for each other. And it was like, I was just in my mind, even at the time I was already through Marine boot camp, but I was in the reserves and, you know, I was aware that there was a military world out there, but I was not aware that there was any, any kind of battle like that. I was not aware that there was, house-to-house uh, -house street fighting that had taken place by U.S. forces since Vietnam. I was shocked to learn about this, and it wasn't until several months later when somebody recommended the, the book to me that I connected the story that my classmate had told with the real-life battle that would later be memorialized in the book and the movie. Wow. You don't by any chance remember that guy's name, do you? <laughs> I wish I did. Boy, <laughs> I wish I did. I, I would love to, you know, to still be in touch with him. Wow. Yeah, man, that's... Talk about an up-close-and-personal kind of he, thing. Uh, he brought in a photo. Uh, he was one of the Rangers. He wasn't Delta, but he brought in a photo of his unit, and you know he was able to point to you know, the, his, you know, his comrades that had been killed. And, wow. Uh, yeah, it was, it was wild. That is wild. We knew that a movie would be made about this. Yeah. At the time, you know, we didn't. I hope he's doing okay wherever he is. Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, a couple of the articles that I, I kind of looked at and didn't get too much into were talking about the post-traumatic stress and a lot of the the long-term ramifications, especially I think there's one character, I want to say character because I'm so used to reading fiction, one of the men, Hoot, there's a whole thing that now he's like an advocate working for uh, post-traumatic stress and injury-related things. But it, it's interesting you noted that your the classmate was a ranger and not a Delta, and the book gave a really good explanation of the differences between the two, and the movie, it definitely, you definitely knew that they were different, but I got something out of the book that wasn't really in the movie, so I thought, just for our listeners, I would explain the difference between the Deltas and the Rangers. So the Delta Force is the Army's most elite small unit that generally specializes undertaking hostage rescues, prisoner snatches, and high-value target strikes. Most Delta Force guys come from the Rangers battalions after gaining years of experience. So they're older, um, 
it's a it's a different kind of unit it's the elite of the elite of the elite the rangers are the premier light infantry of the army they're organized as one regiment with three subordinate battalions one battalion is always on ranger ready for status from month to month it can be deployed anywhere in the world within 18 hours the ranger mission mainly occurs during the initial hostilities between the U.S. and a small to medium-sized enemy and consists mainly of airfield seizures behind enemy lines. Also, ranger units establish security perimeters for Delta, so there's no surprises or relief forces to deal with. So that's basically how this works. So the, the, the Deltas are the guys in the house subduing the, the bad guy targets, and the rangers are setting up the perimeter and they you know taking care of outside to make sure that the Delta forces can do what they need to do. And one of the things that was mentioned a lot in the book and then showcased in the, in the movie as well was that the Deltas were more removed from the rank-and-file army. So in the army, you know, you have your chain of command and you have this very strict adhesions to the rules and, and the protocols. But in the Delta Force, they didn't have to have military haircuts. They didn't always have to do the, the duties that they were assigned. Um, they didn't use rank to indicate each other. They almost seemed dismissive of the Rangers, as if like the Rangers weren't as good as they were, just because they weren't Delta, even though the Rangers themselves are elite. And I thought an interesting thing that was left in the movie that was in the book was how... Uh, one of the Delta guys didn't have the safety on on his rifle while they were standing there getting their, their food. And I just thought, oh my God, that's so dangerous. But apparently his safety is his finger. And so there was definitely these issues between the, the Deltas and the Rangers, which led to some of the problems when they were on the ground because nobody really knew who was in charge. And they had very different ways of doing things. And so I thought that was interesting. I know you were in the Marines, Ryan, but is there anything similar in the Marines in terms of Delta Rangers or, or elite units, maybe, and that friction? There's, yeah, the more, at, at every level, the more elite that you are, the more uh, friction or disdain you have for the levels below. Um, so, for example, active duty had disdain for reservists and uh, you know, the, the elite, when I was in, uh, was you know, Marine Force Reconnaissance. And, um, you know, you might say that those are similar to, like, our Rangers. Um, what the Marines have also brought back, and I don't know if this is, um, yeah, I don't know the extent to what this is brought back, but the Marines also brought back the Raiders, which were kind of like our special forces in World War II in Korea. I want to say Korea. I'm not 100% sure on that. Um, but the Raiders were like the most elite of the Marines. And, you know, I, I can only imagine that it's, it's the same thing. Soldiers and warriors are the same in, in every culture. Um, <laughs> there's, there's so many similarities. Uh, as much as we like to think of ourselves as not just different from, you know, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, but clearly superior uh, in the Marine Corps, <laughs> there's, uh, you know, every, every service is, is the same type of person, essentially. Your, your soldier is essentially the same person around the world. Your, your professional career uh, soldier, in, in particular someone who has been in the same, like nowadays, for example, you know, people will go on multiple, multiple combat tours, whereas like in Vietnam, two tours was, you know, hardcore, three tours was almost unheard of. You know, I know lots of guys that have been, you know, overseas eight, ten times or more. But yeah, your, your professional soldier essentially is the same, the same person around the world. And it's interesting, you're talking about the 
re-enlisting basically going back out to combat and something the movie obviously the movie was great but it couldn't possibly get into the minds of all of the characters all of the men i'm sorry i'm going to just keep doing that but in the book they multiple times the the man talking giving his point of view would be like and that was the moment i decided to re-enlist um this happened and that's when i knew and sometimes it was these good moments of i saved somebody's life and i decided yes i'm going to re-enlist if we live through this i'm going to sign back up and sometimes it was when horrible things were happening and they were like this is wrong this is bad and I, I feel compelled, like my job's not done and I'm going to re-enlist. And so I thought that was really interesting and obviously difficult to do in the movie, but it made um, the soldiers very human in a lot of ways. On a much shorter scale, uh, shorter time scale is not re-enlisting, but time and again, even in the movie, you see people that, you know, they go out there. You know, you see the soldier that's like, I can't go back out there. And he sees the convoy leaving without him and then, you know, he, he's like, okay, and he, you know, he grabs his helmet and he runs back out there. You see, uh, after the convoy has returned back, you know, um, you know Colonel Knight or McKnight or whatever it was, uh, you know, they're like, hey, you know, you guys have done enough. You don't have to go back out there. And, you know, of course he's dismissive of that idea. And even at the end, Poot's grabbing some food, and then he's like, I'm going to go back out there. There are people that understand that the job is not done, and, you know, therefore they can't rest. I will say that I found those three instances that you gave are, like, the three points on a spectrum. Um, the first one is the guy who says, I'm scared and I don't want to go. And he says to his commanding officer, I don't want to go. It's terrible. And the right. commanding officer basically says, yeah, I know. Um, this is this is the moment you have to decide. And he doesn't order him to go. He, he knows that's the order, right? It's, that order's already been stead. But the, he's not like he's going to grab him and throw him in the truck. But he basically says, like, this is where you have to decide if, you, you know, what, but bravery is, you know, we're all scared. Um, and the guy goes and he decides to go. He faces the fear. And I mean, that's that's what courage is, right? Courage is being scared and doing it anyway. That serviceman actually felt embarrassed about that and, and talked to um, Bowden about maybe not putting that in the book. And Bowden said, no, that is a key and a very important moment because that's what separates you know, soldiers from non-soldiers, you know, people who can go and do that. And then the other example of McKnight, who'd been on this horrible convoy, basically just, I, I have to tell you, of all of the guys, I think McKnight is the one I felt the worst for. I felt bad for all of them. There's like no good jobs in here, right? But, but this guy, like literally seeing the crash lights a block away, but they can't get to it. And they're like being directed, but all of their communications is being routed through somebody who's being routed through somebody who's being routed through somebody else. And so they're like, okay, turn left. But by the time that goes down, 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 down to turn left, you're, you're three blocks away from where you were supposed to turn left. Driving in circles for hours. Just awful. Anyways, he gets back and he's injured. He's got a neck injury and they're like, we got to go. Now, in the book, he actually stayed back and he didn't go back out because they needed him to do stuff at the base. And in the movie, they made him go back out. And so I thought that was kind of an interesting change. Um, but again, and I thought it was good in the book, actually, when he stopped, he was like, okay, I've done this part. And now there's other things that need to get done. Nobody is defending the airfield right now. We could complete, we're completely open to attack. Like the militiamen in the city are very busy, but if any of them realize that everybody's out there right now, like we're completely open. And so even though he wants to go back, yeah. he stays behind to protect people, which is just as brave in a different way. 
And then you have Hoot. And I have to tell you, I don't like macho-ism stuff. And the Delta guys <laughs> definitely have that in spades. He was the character, I'm going to say it, in the movie. Character in the because he was not the same way in the book. He was the little bit more of a, I'm so jaded and cool. And I'm going to wear my sunglasses and just ha like have this, this, <laughs> Ugh, this ooze about myself and you know I just mm, that's Eric Bana so yeah he's the one at the end who's he was a bit of a character in the movie yeah and they didn't do that even that was not they didn't go back in after they all got out and they got to the the amphitheater they they didn't go back because you know at that point I, you know they didn't they couldn't and they they didn't have those orders and so I, I didn't really think that we needed that in the movie. I think that like we, I I won't say that it undermines the other heroic deeds because I don't think anything could because the other guys did such a, an amazing thing. But that kind of stuff felt a little Hollywood. And even as we were watching it, uh, the person I was watching it was, was like... Oh, very much so. Very much so. That, that was very Hollywood. That was very much for the audience. Right. And the person I was watching it was like was that guy in the book because even because like it felt off it felt wrong to have this one guy be like i'm an army of one where like all the rest of it was about the unit and protecting the guy next to you and no right. man being left behind and whatever anyways i didn't like him <clears throat> but i like the other guys especially mcknight mcknight who's played by tom sizemore and can we just take a second because the casting of this movie was amazeballs so good it was i hate i hate the fact that i cannot like tom sizemore anymore because uh, i love him in every movie it's yeah unfortunate yeah no no i i know i know how you feel um it is really awful when when you can't separate the person from the craft or the art or the whatever but actually that's a good segue because one of the most interesting men in the book who you really rooted for the whole way through the book was Stebbins, who was renamed Grimes in the movie, but he's the guy who was the coffee guy who's making coffee and had tried to join multiple times and finally was able to get in and finally able to be a ranger and then got relegated to coffee duty and never saw any action, finally sees action in this, sees more action than he probably ever wanted to see, and um, they had to change his name because the real guy, um, Stebbins, is, is actually, he was kicked out of the military for a court-martial for um, like a heinous crime against a child that I don't really want to get into the details of. But yeah, so the Pentagon said, mm. but his, what he did... We're not making a hero out of this guy. Right, but what he did in that battle was heroic. He did great things. But <laughs> then he went and did horrible things. So the compromise to leave the, the and this time I will say the word character, rename him um, so that the heroic aspects of a soldier doing those things stays, but we don't have the name associated with it. And I thought, oh my God, like, first of all, we all have multitudes, right? So you can be a hero and also a horrible person who does horrible things. And I, I, that's, I mean, that's, that's, uh, one of my uh, objections to, um, you know, using the, the, the term hero too, uh, too widely applied to the military, you know, especially after 9-11, all of a sudden anybody in the uniform is a hero. 
Hmm. Um, I, I personally know guys who did amazing things, uh, and a woman who did, you know, some amazing things over there, uh, overseas. Um, I say over there in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, at least, you know, in, in defense of their, you know, their people in defense of their beliefs and values, or, you know, at least their mission. Some of them are horrible people and have done horrible things back here. So, I mean, you know, I like to think of heroic acts as opposed to heroic people because today a hero, tomorrow an asshole, right? Yeah, for reals. No, I like that. Uh, heroic acts as opposed to heroic people. I have nothing to add to that because that's perfectly put. Um, once once you earn the uh, the right to wear the hero hat, doesn't mean you get to wear it every day for the rest of your life. That, and that's true for, I mean, so many different groups, right? You know, you could say, you know. Absolutely. There's assholes in every group, which is, <laughs> which is something that it's hard to admit. You're like, no, not in my group. My group of Christians or pagans or atheists or queer people or women or, or dudes who drive trucks. We're all nice. No, man, there's an asshole in your group somewhere. And if you can't think of one, it's probably you. But <clears throat> anyway. <laughs> yep. Oh, okay. So here's a fun little interesting thing. So there were a hundred key figures in the book. They were condensed to 39 key figures in the movie. <laughs> I just... That's how a lot of movies got to do it. <laughs> it's, it's amazing how well it did, though, considering... And I... Okay, I will tell you, reading this book, I, I really like Bowdoin's style for the most part, but it took me a little while to realize that I didn't have to memorize and remember everything. So I'm reading it, and it's like... Ten guys get in a helicopter. Here's guy number one. Here's a biographical paragraph about him. Here's guy number two. Here's a biographical paragraph about him and where he was born and what he's doing when he gets home. And here's guy number three. And it would go through all the guys. And I'd be like, okay, okay, I got it. And then it'd be like, and then helicopter number two, we have these 12 guys. Here's a biographical paragraph. And I'd be like, oh my God, I can't keep any of them, any of them straight. Like, I, I'm so confused. There's just, there's too many of them. And then at some point I realized like, that was okay, because even though they all had very individual jobs to do, like, they were units of people. So, and, you know, a bunch of them were going to die, and they did die, and then you could go back and be like, oh, that's the guy who blah, blah, blah. And the ones who were repeated and who had more to do and who lived to tell the story, you could kind of tell because you got more information and you got more from their standpoint, like McKnight or Howe, and um, Howe was one of the Delta guys. Anyways, um... So, and I, so, but, it, but at first it was very disconcerting because there were just so many of them and I kind of had to start, I won't say skimming their names, but being like, okay, ranger guy, delta guy, ranger guy, delta guy, guy at the crash site, guy at this site, because it, at some point it didn't matter as much who, who they were, their individuality, which is kind of a weird thing to say. I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of books especially that are adapted to movies, will end up cutting out a lot of things like that. I mean, you know, we don't know, uh, you know, having watched the movies, for example, we don't know what, what the hobbits were eating and things like that, right? <laughs> um, I think in this particular case, he was trying to just do as much, um, I guess he was trying to do right by or do as much justice to, you know, as many of the, the soldiers as possible uh, to, to humanize as many of the characters into men as possible. Um, yeah, you know, a lot of books don't do that. Generally, it drives me nuts when I have to, you know, when, when a book does do that, 
gives me too much backstory on too many characters or, you know, some books will even give you like literally a bio of all the major characters at the beginning of the book. You're like, I don't care. What have you done for me in the last two chapters? <laughs> yes. So that was definitely a struggle as the book went on and we didn't need all those introductions, then it got easier to kind of wade through. And then it, then you get into the movie. Okay. So as Ryan knows, and as people who know me in real life and people who follow our social media, I don't have the best eyes. I'm a little low vision. We have a very large television. It is one of, it is, it is massive anyways, but I'm watching this. And I realized one of the reasons why I have trouble with military movies is because it's all a bunch of white boys with the same haircut in dirty clothes. Like I can't tell any of them apart. And so, oh my God. And so again, it started to bother me. I was like, who's what? Okay, Everson's got the eyebrows. Okay. And then all these other guys look the same. And then like the Delta guys had different helmets. So you could kind of tell them apart. They're wearing basically hockey helmets instead of like the bulletproof helmets because they're all quick and elite and they... You know, it's more important that they don't hit their heads on the ceilings. Very nice touch, by the way. And there's that one guy who's them, and he's an actor I recognize. But, oh, my God, so many of them. And, again, I had, like, this kind of weird disconnect of, like, how do I identify with these characters when they, they literally, and eventually, as the battle goes on, and they're all banged up, and they've all got the same amount of 5 o'clock blood shadow, you know? Um, and at some point, I realized it matters and it doesn't matter all at the same time because they are a unit. So they are individuals who, who matter, obviously, to the people who love them and they have their individual jobs to do. But this is the story about a group, about a cohesive unit. And and the cogs are part of like are part of the whole. And the whole is what is really mattering here. And I don't know, it was this it was a little liberating to be like, okay, I can't tell them apart and that's okay. <laughs> And then, you know, oh, this one died and then this one did this and this one did this. And you can kind of tell them apart a little bit more as, you know, through their actions, but not just by, by what they look like. And I don't know. I found that very, very interesting. And I know that there's a lot of reviewers who kind of said shit about the movie in some respects because we didn't get character development. I'm using quotes here. Um, we didn't get to know them deeply. And I think that if you want to know them deeply, read the book. And if you but you don't have to. You don't have to know them deeply to see what they that they were doing these heroic actions, you know, and that that's kind of okay, and it makes it a little bit more universal, almost, you know, that this could be any group of rangers who are well, out there doing rangery things. I mean, the movie was over. The movie was over two hours as it was. You know, there was never going to be a lot of character development, but I think there were some nice touches in the movie that still remind you that these are human beings. You know, whether it's Durant trying to hang on to the picture of his family or. Uh, I don't remember if it was, uh, I, don't, I don't remember which of the uh, Delta snipers it was that called home and, you know, left the answering machine message. There's a throwback answering machine. Yeah, there's, there are touches that remind you that, that these are people. Mm -hmm. these, are, these are humans. I mean, there's only so much you can do in, in the movie without turning it into, you know, three hours or some crazy business. Well, what I appreciated is that, that they didn't just pick one guy to, like, give our a big exposition background and like give short shift to all of the other ones in order to give us a big character dive into one or two guys they kept it a little bit more detached so that we could bond with the others the like with a wider variety of people because the way, reason why readers or audience members identify and bond with who they see up on the screen or on the pages 
is is either like shared experience or um, sympathy, right? So you're like, oh, I can see myself in that situation. I feel bad for you. Or like, oh my God, you're going through something horrible. And I, as an audience member, is, are going through it with you and seeing how you react to these stressors and traumas and dramas and all of that kind of stuff. And so we don't, we don't always need a lot of exposition. I think sometimes in movies and books, they give us so much exposition so that then you're like, oh yeah, now I'm on team Michael or I'm on team Raphael or I'm on team whatever before the climax or any of the drama even happens. In this case, we are, we're not really identifying, but we're sympathizing because we're seeing them go through this traumatic event and we feel like we're right there with them, even though we know that we're safe at home and they're definitely not. So I just, it was very well done. <laughs> did, uh, did the chapter on whale biology make you identify with Captain Ahab more in Moby Dick? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, you should, uh, you should do an episode on that. Uh, you gonna come back and talk about Moby Dick? <laughs> if I can read the abridged version, and we can make it the uh, the uh, Patrick Stewart adaptation of the movie. Well, I am always down for watching Captain Picard uh, do anything. So, okay, I might hold you to that. Speaking of how long it was, there's eight minutes extra on some versions, but I don't know if that was the version I saw or not. I got a little confused when I was doing my research, but apparently there's a version on the DVD version is eight extra minutes of battle footage. So I don't know if that's what's on Amazon Prime or not, but I watched Amazon Prime and I feel like I got plenty of battle. So there. I watched my uh, my DVD from almost 20 years ago. Oh, wow. <laughs> so you got the whole eight, extra eight minutes. I wonder what you saw that I didn't. Well, you know, I was going to, I was going to reference uh, little things in my notes. I made uh, a couple of timestamp related, related to my comments, and now I'm realizing that maybe those timestamps are going to be off for you. Uh, <laughs> so never mind. Never mind. But go ahead. I one of the timestamps that I made, and I don't know, it's not a, exact, but it was like it, we were 43 minutes into the movie before the battle started. Did you catch that? No. And I thought that, that was battle really dragged on too. Yeah, it did. It it. I mean, it was very very long. But at the same time, we were 43 minutes into the movie before the actual battle started. That was a lot of setup and a lot of yeah. other stuff. Well, I guess it was 43 minutes before the, um, the, the Black Hawk went down. Is, is That's when I time-stamped it. I was like, oh, when he said Black before Hawk down, I was sideways. like, to titular line. Um, yeah. To what line? To titular, when they say the title. Oh, titular line. Yeah. Roll credits. And in the book, um, four helicopters were actually shot, two landed safely, and then these we didn't get that in the movie, which is fine. That was not a not a problem. Some key differences. In in both of them, we've got the new guy falling off the helicopter, the new guy being all full of hubris. I came here to kick some ass, and then he falls and doesn't ever get to take part. The struggles between the Delta Forces and the Rangers, although I thought that the book fleshed that out more. The movie added a little bit of local color, showing the warlords actually killing unarmed people trying to get the food, etc., which was not in the book. But the book had a whole bunch of chronological chapters from the point of view of the Somalis, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, uh, Bowden interviewed a lot of, I don't know, I don't want, I'm going to say combatants in this summer, but he interviewed a lot of folks on the Somali side. Yeah, the, they called themselves militia, and also like a boy who was just trapped in the house at one point hiding the movie really didn't do that and the makers of the movie got in trouble actually a little bit for not casting actual somali people or using the actual no. language that the people would have been using right not a single somali actor and 
it wasn't the Somali languages. Yeah, which is kind of flawed. Well, at the at the time, to be fair, uh, Somalia was basically a complete failed state. Yeah, I'm not sure if they could have. <laughs> That's an interesting time. Probably harder to get into. Right, exactly. Not, probably not a lot of actors, you know, <laughs> hanging out in Somalia trying to catch a break. But it was an interesting choice. It was filmed in Morocco. Somebody asked me um, if I could start referencing where things were filmed. So there you go. This was filmed in Morocco. Oh, the fact that, yeah, so Bowdoin did go to Mogadishu and, like, spent time there interviewing people and walking the streets. And he spent so much time talking to all of the soldiers. And I I just, I felt like it really came out in the book, you know, that he took this very seriously. He wasn't there to have a political agenda. He was there to tell what happened, to bear witness and he makes a point in the afterword of the book about how um, a lot of war books are written much later or they're written with with the writer the author being a main part of it and he didn't want to do that he was just bearing witness and letting these guys stories tell itself and i thought that was really well done and i think that it translated pretty well into the movie you know obviously there was no Bowden character in the movie uh but we did have that sense of what was happening was these guys on the ground, they may or may not know what the motivation is, but they're there to do their job and that's what they're there to do. There was a few guys who had definitely opinions about stuff, but it it didn't get preachy, I guess, which was good. I didn't, I, I'm glad. Oh, you mentioned the wife who answered the phone. Uh, the only female in the entire movie why was she there? <laughs> like, I, I honestly, I didn't feel like we needed that to add to the drama of, you know, a missed phone call. We, you know, the guys, I don't know. I didn't feel like we needed it. So this movie definitely doesn't pass the Bechdel test, which just goes to show you that the Bechdel test isn't the best test to tell you whether or not a movie's worth watching, because this movie definitely worth watching. <laughs> Star Trek doesn't pass the Bechdel test either. So true. Okay, so... I wanted to talk about the music because I thought this was really interesting, but not just the score. The score was fine, although I will tell you that when the end credits started to roll and the music that played during the end credits literally sounds like Civil War music, which works, but is also kind of jarring. But the other music, the songs, and I swear to god i was going to look up this word but there's two types of music in in movies and shows and one is like the score like the music that's over and the other is when someone just turns on a radio and that's the song that's playing in the scene the guys in the hangar are listening to music the guys on the helicopters are listening to music there's music there's a lot of music and there were some definitely like some 90s music right you know because this movie was made in 2001 we have like faith no more you know you had some good late 90s stuff but then you had a lot of Elvis and some other stuff too that just made it feel very timeless to me. It it kind of p pointed a finger towards to Vietnam without being like, look at this, we're similar to Vietnam. You know what I mean? And um, for example- I think that uh, American audiences have a certain, you know, prior to the, I guess the the next um, kind of generation of war movies that kicked off after 9-11, everything that we knew, you know, everything that we quote-unquote knew about war came from Vietnam movies. If we weren't, you know, in the military or had family in the military, everything we knew about war came from Vietnam movies. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, or World War II John Wayne movies, right? And only John Wayne. Um, 
and you know, I think our collective conscience there was, you know, rock and roll and helicopters, right? For sure. Anyway, go on. No, I mean exactly. It's like when you watch Forrest Gump and he's in Vietnam, and the music is like so perfect, and you're like, oh, of course, right? But it, it definitely added a level. Um, I definitely noticed it, and when the helicopters take off towards the mission, what they're playing is Voodoo Child by Stevie Ray Vaughan, which is not the other, it's not the um, Jimi Hendrix version, it's Stevie Ray Vaughan's version. Stevie Ray Vaughan died in a helicopter accident. Voodoo Child is like kind of a portent of bad. So like, none of this can be accidental, right? I mean, it just sets this tone. I have to, it's so good. (laughs) The movie was so good. And... We kind of, I skipped this toward at the beginning. I normally say how I came to the book and movie and whatever. The book came out, and I totally missed it. The movie came out, and I totally missed it. And then at some point, somebody was watching the scene of uh, Smith and the femoral artery being, you know, there's blood splattering, and there's people yelling, and I walked through a room, and I said, oh, my God, what are you watching? And they said, oh, it's Black Hawk Down. And I went, oh, yeah, some war movie, and rolled my eyes and walked away. So that was my entire knowledge. I don't particularly like military movies and war movies because I don't like mass violence and I don't like war stuff and I don't like macho stuff and sometimes I feel like they're just really weirdly placed tone-deaf recruitment vehicles and they make me uncomfortable. Whatever. Anyway, so I tend to just not watch them and so I was really ambivalent about watching this and then we, you said we should and I said okay because I love you and I read the book and I was like grumble 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 so many characters and then I got like a third of the way through and I'm like holy crap this is really good and then I was super compelled and as you know read most of it in one day. It's a long day but still and good book. it was a good book and then I watched the movie and I really still didn't want to watch the movie because I knew it was going to be all violent and stuff. And I was like, how are they going to make this look all cowboy, macho, you know, rah, rah America when that was that totally wasn't the book. But in my head, all war movies are cowboy, rah, rah America. And I'm so glad that I was wrong and that this was not cowboy, rah, rah. And yeah, it was so good. I'm so glad. I don't know if I'll ever watch it again, to be honest. Like, you know, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I haven't. I haven't watched the movie since before Adam was killed in 2004. I, I have not watched the movie in the last 16 years. I could understand why. I thought of him a lot, actually, especially ever since eyebrows made me had gave me strong Adam eyebrow vibes. Uh, it's funny, yeah, those, uh, those perfectly sculpted Josh Hartnett eyebrows. Yes. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know who's in your audience, but a lot of the uh, the scene with uh, was it Smith, right? You know, mm-hmm. uh, was, was Jamie or whatever when you know when again with the femoral artery was cut a lot of that scene uh i had a hard time with um just because of what i know about how adam died and for people who you know don't know adam was a uh, schoolmate of ours who schoolmate sounds very british he was he went to school with us he was a a couple years younger and he died in 2004 in uh, Sauter city i believe in Baghdad. yeah so that was our that's the closest i personally have come to knowing you know i mean i knew him i'm floundering now my hands are flying um yeah and i'm I'll sure i'll take you back to the soundtrack for a moment <laughs> okay. to just to lighten things up um i'm surprised that we didn't hear any uh so having read the book you know what i'm referring to we didn't hear any alice in chains in the soundtrack did we uh n- no nothing didn't, didn't hear the Wait. rooster 
there was there there might have been one Alice in Chains. Hold on, why am I thinking that? Is that from? I um, remind me after Durant was captured, uh, didn't they fly around blasting the rooster to let him know that they knew he was alive? Oh, I I remember them flying around and t saying, "Michael Durant, we have not forgotten you. We will not leave you." Yeah, we're not going to leave you. Yeah, I don't remember there being an out. I but I could have just missed that. Um, I, I could have sworn. I I mean, it's been a while since I read the book too, but. Yeah, they but no, but that the song definitely wasn't in it. I wondered if the reason I'm surprised why surprised they didn't sneak it in there. Yeah. I, I did think that um Elvis music, not just from the time standpoint and like the universality and, you know, all of that kind of stuff, but also because Elvis was the name of the pilot who died in the other Blackhawk, not the Durant Blackhawk, but Elvis Yeah. Was uh Wolcott, right? Wolcott. No, yeah. Not, yeah. Not Wolcott. No, it was Wolcott. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty sure. And he was the one so that gets us back on track. He was the one who, um, he not only died, but his seat was so compressed in that they couldn't just lift him out and take him. And so they spent hours and hours and hours like cutting out the seat and getting his, his body. And so there were two instances, that and then the other time where there's basically just Durant down there in the helicopter and all the Somali people are running and they drop in two Delta guys to kind of hold thousands of Somali people at bay. And so in both cases, the idea is like, you never leave a man behind. And there's an emotional resonance of that, of you never leave a man behind. But then, I mean, and I'm not in the military, so this is my large grain of salt right here, but there's a pragmatic tactical aspect of me saying, but he's, that's not him, that's a body. like like all these other people's lives, you know, like the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the corpse. And I, I feel really bad for saying that, but I just, and I don't know if that's just because I'm not in the military or if I'm, because I'm not a Christian. So for me, like, it's just a body. It doesn't, I don't know, but I don't know. I was wondering if you could give a little bit of, of thought of the, of those times when you put at risk this number of people for, for this, if that makes sense. You know, um, it's funny. The uh, military commanders have to they have to wear their pragmatic hat, their pragmatic helmet, um, and make you know brutally cold and ruthless and logical calls sometimes. Um, but at the same time, you have to know that uh, every guy in the end. You know, every guy and gal, every soldier, every warrior in the end, they're there for the person that's, you know, in the Humvee next to them or in the foxhole next to them. Probably the other part of the movie uh, that got to me the most was when the Delta snipers insisted on uh, getting dropped in with Durant to protect him, knowing absolutely crystal clear, knowing that's a suicide mission, that if nothing else, at least he wasn't going to die alone. That really got to me. I don't know why that mm. resonated with me so much. You know, because suicide itself is not, you know, something we typically think of as, as brave, right? Putting yourself in harm's way, you know, just to, to help someone else maybe hang on just a little bit longer to give them that little glimmer of hope. That's probably, it, it's over uh, glamorized, obviously, in the movies, but it's maybe one of the most noble things that, you know, you can do, right? So, you know, the way know. the way you just described it completely changed the way I thought of it because I'm thinking tactical, you can't save him, or he's already dead, or da 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 da. And what you said was so that he wouldn't have to die alone, which was not like 
I wasn't thinking so that he wouldn't die alone. I was thinking like, they're going to go in there and save him from dying. But obviously that's not going to work. They know that everyone's going to die. But yeah, you're right. That that human thing about not dying alone and having somebody with you when when you die is very... You freaking gave me chills. So screw you and thank you all at the same time. Nobody should have to die alone. True, that. Um, and then you think about, like in the book, they had those two guys, those two Delta guys, they had their wives having to get those phone calls. And... I just, it's just, you know, I can't imagine not if, you know, how you not, how you continue to live without being so angry, you know, at the person that you love who died so that somebody else could live. Maybe, maybe is the thing. It's a maybe. And, and then like how you as Durant could like function knowing these people like gave their lives for you too. Like I just, oh my God. Like I said survivor's earlier. Guilt. Yeah. Survivor's guilt. There's, there's like. There's no good job here. Everybody's everybody's got it bad. You know, the generals have it yeah. bad and the guys on the ground, everybody. And it just, they're, you're so, ah. Blah. You know, bringing it back to the human aspect. So the other um, the other side of that coin with, with Adam being killed is, you know, his widow, of course, was a friend of ours. Um, you know, I've known her since she was six years old. And, you know, it, it completely, you know, I mean, we talk about something being devastating, right? But it, it destroyed her. You know, not forever, obviously. You know, she's very successful today. Uh, in fact, she's a doctor dealing with the you know the COVID clinic today. Mm-hmm. But you know, it absolutely destroyed her. You know, when when the uh, liaison officers showed up to give her the bad news, it, it destroyed her. It devastated her. There's there's no there's no word for it. There's you can you can describe it in you know, English words that we can hear and know the meaning of, but you cannot convey what it is like. And, uh, you know, I mean, just the, uh, just the, the concussion of being on the sideline of that and seeing and you know, hearing and feeling what that person goes through is, you know, is tough on us, you know, just to, to feel that, that concussion, right. We're not there at ground zero to get that blast of, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, you know, for your loss, right. I'm sorry, your loved one, your husband, you know, whoever, Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it makes it human for real. You know, as for survivor's guilt, I can't imagine what Durant is going through either. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, you know, we I we picked this so that it would come out on Memorial Day. You know, because I think honestly, when I picked it, I was like, yeah, Memorial Day. You know, military war, blah blah blah. But now it's got a lot extra meanings because I'm thinking it's it's Memorial Day. We want to think of the people who we've lost right and and like you said the people who are left behind and there's a thing that i've struggled with in in for a while a long time which is how you can support the troops but not necessarily like what they're doing you know that's a frustration that i personally struggle with and books like this movies like this help people like me kind of put those things together in a way that it can work. I can feel so badly for these guys and think that what they did was, you know, full of heroic actions and awful that they had to go through all of that. At the same time, I can still be mad at politicians who don't always think things through or don't seem to think things through and put people in harm's way 
for no foreseeable, understandable, tangible reason. Absolutely. And, and I think that that's okay. I think it's okay to have both of those things. And I think that some of those guys had both of those things, you know, um, I didn't like Hoot, but I did like what he what's, said. What's the line from Hamilton? Love the sinner, hate the sin. There you go. Um, I didn't like Hoot, but I liked the line of like, when the bullets start flying, the politics go away. And it's not about the politics anymore. It's about, you know, survival. And so I think we can honor those who died and still hold um, the higher ups accountable and not just give them a pass. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, for one thing, politicians start wars and soldiers fight them and, and die in them. I mean, it's it's that simple, right? Like, yeah. You know, there were a lot of people that were in Mogadishu, you know, joined the Rangers, joined the army because of their ideals. And, you know, whether it's clear cut and you believe that, you know, we are protecting and feeding and bringing democracy or peace or whatever to the Somalis or to the Iraqis or to, you know, the Afghanis, whatever, right? Um, I mean, yeah, shortly before I deployed, you know, we went out to the bar one last time and obviously people are like, oh my God, what, you're like, you're leaving next week? Aren't you afraid? It's like the the kind of crazy, uh, well, I can't even call it crazy, but the thoughts that were in my head back then were, you know, from my, you know, from my ground level view as, as a Marine corporal, not, you know, as a general, not as a senator or, you know, president or secretary of state or defense, right? As a Marine corporal, what, what I told people back then and what I believed back then was, you know, hey, what are the democracies, what, what can be, you know, so valuable to us? Uh, what is there in life that's worth living for if it's not worth dying for? And that is, you know, that is the honest truth of what was in my head at the time. Now, it's still, I still believe it. Uh, but at the same time, you know, <laughs> did we, I mean, did, did we kill of all the people that are dead, right? Uh, and, you know, from every country and every creed and culture and background, you know, whatever side you want to call it. Was it worth it? Who knows? Maybe, maybe the history books will know 100 years from now. But uh, politicians start wars, soldiers fight and die in them. And I thought that it was interesting that one of the reasons why this mission, which, by the way, from a technical standpoint, was not a failure. They literally went in to get these guys, Abid's guys. They got the guys, they got out. Yeah, there was a whole stuff that happened, but they technically did... You can did... say shit show. There was a shit show. Podcast. Yes, on my podcast. On my... Yes. <laughs> we do curse. But, like, all of that, yes. But they technically did their mission. So it really irks me, as a layperson, reading these movie reviews and stuff, and they're like, oh, on the failed mission of the blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, were you paying attention? Because they did not fail their mission. And that, it seems really rude, but whatever. Okay, anyways. Costly. Yeah, costly mission. It was a failed. costly, but it wasn't a failure. Um... Oh my god, I lost my train of thought. No, okay, so they went in. Pyrrhic victory. It was. It was completely a Pyrrhic victory. Uh, but one of the things that made it the shit show happen and all of the stuff was first Blackburn fell out of the helicopter, right? Okay, bad news bears. You could say could have been preventable. In the movie, um, there's an RPG that you know makes the, the helicopter has to move and then that's why he misses the rope. In the book, he just misses like he just he's so eager and then he just misses which is frustrating but also human like they're not robots they're guys okay so okay 
But then what really seemed to cause like a lot of problems, not just the delay in communication level, which I understand there's a reason why they have to do it that way, but you know, God damn. But that they, the, the Somali people, there were just so many of them. And they had those rocket launcher things, RPGs. And they were, they were, they, I won't say they were ready, but they, they just, they never stopped. They just never stopped. And, and on the one hand, you had the guys who were like, why won't they just stop? But at the same time, the soldiers in the book, they're thinking like, well, of course they're not going to stop. They think that what they're doing is right. And if you came into my house and into my street and into my city, like well, I would fight tooth and nail and blah, blah, blah. Right. The, the soldiers, not me. I'm a coward. I would hide. Right. Um, but like, and so I thought that was really interesting. It was like almost this, this, um, this idea that America is so like the, the military of America is so amazingly big and the Gulf War had happened and it was kind of a snap, not to diminish the losses, but like, seriously, it was not a huge thing. It was not Vietnam and it was not World War Two. And can, no I, one can need... I pause you there for a second? Yes. I mean, I don't remember if this is in the book. Uh, in the movie, however, at one point, uh, the line, uh, oh, my God, he says, this isn't Iraq. This is much more complicated than that. Boy, that was... Uh... That, that did not age well. <laughs> no, I would imagine you know, I mean, not. You know, don't 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 get me wrong. You know, uh, Iraq episode one was much simpler than Iraq episode two. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, man, when we reboot anyway, things, just, man, they just make yeah, everything no. more extreme. But no, but so you have like this idea. Right. So, yeah, that, Mogadishu, fresh fresh off of clean victory. Yeah. Right. We were thinking we're the badasses. You know. We're, and I think it was like an underestimation of the Somali people and what they were going to be capable of doing. And so it's kind of like hubris and it's and getting smacked down. And I yeah. thought that was really interesting. There's this quote I found about the movie. And OK, so we already talked about how this this was the first war movie after 9-11. And it was also the last war movie made before the start of the war on terror. So the military gave the filmmakers access to gear in a way that would have been impossible just a few months later, which is interesting. But here's the quote. As Americans were processing the fallout of an attack on American soil, 9-11, Black Hawk Down showed the U.S. troops regroup, regrouping and showing strength and heroism after another surprise attack. I was like, well, I don't know if I agree that it was another surprise attack as much as I they underestimated the Somali people and then, you know, had to regroup. Yeah. So on the one hand, I can see where that would work really well post 9-11. Like, wow, the world is really different and really changed and we have to be prepared. And look, these guys weren't prepared. And so we need to be prepared. And then that ushered in a whole war on terror thing. At the same time, like it didn't happen right after 9-11. Like it happened in the early 90s. We were just seeing it on the screens after 9-11 and so i don't know that was that was kind of a weird thing to read but uh i don't know if they'd make a movie like this nowadays honestly that i feel like right right now it would need more cowboy usa rah 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 and it wouldn't i don't know maybe i'm just jaded i you know i i think i disagree i think um you know, one of the criticisms of the movie was it, uh, you know, it let America and our, uh, you know, again, like the hubris, it kind of let us off the hook a little bit more than the book did. But honestly, I feel like the, the movie did 
at the same time show that you know it 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 like it left the question it didn't beg the question but it kind of left it sort of implied like hey should we be here you know like are we should we re- should we really be messing around in this area? Um, See, I got that in the book, but I didn't get that in the movie because in the movie they added the warlord guy shooting the unarmed people for food, and we didn't get any Somalia people talking about their clans and like the history of what had happened and this and that and the other thing. It just it was just swarms com- of compared to compared to the book, no, okay. but um, I think as a standalone, the, the movie still like. They still make it clear this guy, you know, ID's a bad guy, right? You know, and all his, you know, his lieutenants are gunning down crowds coming from food, blah, blah, blah. But, like, I still think the movie does imply the question standalone. Um, you know, hey, like, really, should, should we really be here? And I think that there's an appetite for that kind of question now than there was, um, you know, certainly post 9-11. But uh, I think that just... You know, in pop culture now, there's more of an appetite for questioning America's military adventurism, if you will. <laughs> military adventurism, yeah. Well, it's not it's not quite imperialism, you know. <laughs> military adventurism. <laughs> okay, yes, not not imperialism, I did, but inve- I okay, I get you, I get you. Yes, <laughs> we want to go I there. We don't want to run it. Yes, okay. <laughs> yeah. We just want to we just want to go there and rattle our saber and establish a base. We don't we don't want to actually like we don't want to be the ones to actually like have to you know pay the rent on it. Right. Exactly. God. I think that's still true today. I mean, obviously, you know, with um, you know with Syria and uh, you know this whole thing with uh, ISIS, you know, we learned some lessons from you know Iraq of the early and mid two thousands and from Afghanistan. But like, man. We are still sending people, you know. We are we are still sending, uh, you know, our people to to kill and be killed by other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're still messing around in things, you know. And I'm I'm not here to say whether we should or should not be in, in these other countries, right? That's I'm not um, I'm not going to take a stand on that topic. Just I uh, I think that we're still sending our you know our young warriors into other countries to kill other citizens and kill other young warriors and be killed by other young warriors. And there's, I think that there's still a, an appetite for people to question that. So I think you could make this movie again. Um, you know, I haven't seen that. I don't know. There was a movie about the embassy attack. You know, I didn't see that. I didn't. I had more of an appetite for military and war movies when I was, when I was in the Marines, obviously now, you know, now I want to see a movie about supply chain and electric cars. Um, <laughs> I, I would say that I think Bowden kind of almost, he doesn't make the, the claim of whether, what we should or shouldn't be doing, but he does say that the Mogadishu battle affected U.S. policy and um, politicians were gun-shy for a little while. And that's why things like Rwanda and some of the other things he listed in the book happened in the mid to late 90s because they were, they were gun-shy and they didn't want... Um, these gray, murky battles because Vietnam was a clusterfuck. But before that, like World War II is very black and white. Like that's the last time that it's been black and white. And I I mean, I know we're ignoring the Korea War. I'm sorry to those people who, I know I'm going to get emails, but I'm sorry, like the history books hardly mention it. So 
shush. Um, but like in World War II, there was like the very clear bad guys and the very clear good guys. And I don't know if it was as clear then as, as it seems like it should have been, but like at least from the military standpoint and from the people at home in the 50s and the 60s and like, no, you know, like bad, good, access of evil, etc. Okay. Allies, access, whatever. Well, even, even if it wasn't as clear, um, you know, what, what was the ideologies and, you know, um, certainly the, the concentration camps, we didn't know about those right off the bat, right? Mm-hmm. But what was clear from, I mean, from 1939 even, what was clear is that there was one country that was aggressing and invading other countries, you know, in Europe, which, you know, has been a lot of, uh, you know, mainstream U.S. identity has been, you know, descended from Europe, right? And obviously not all of right. U.S. cultural identity, but... Um, the, the, the mainstream U S cultural identity, you know, back then was descended from Europe. And so to a lot of people, it was like, oh man, like that would be like, uh, you know, you're out in the Valley now, right. Looking yeah. back at your hometown and oh my gosh, what's going on back in my hometown. This is unspeakable. So even, even before we knew of the atrocities of, you know, the Nazis, even before that became uh, publicly known, there was still everyone knew that there was one country that was going around and invading all these other countries. So there, yes, there was clear good guys and bad guys. And I think that we like that. I mean, we like that in our Absolutely. fiction. We want to know who to root for and stuff like that. Um, the rise of the antihero is only possible in fiction because the trope of the hero has been oversaturated, right? And then that's like, well, let's subvert the idea. Let's do these other things. But we, we're compelled to watch. We want to watch, but we're certainly not rooting for, you know, we're not rooting for Walter White in Breaking Bad. We're watching with, you know, our mouth open, right. but we're, we're not rooting. So, and I, and so when we get into military things, it's not so black and white. It is very gray. It really depends on who you ask and how you ask and what part of the wherever you ask, because, you know, which again is, is why I thought the book did such a good job, because we heard from Somalia people talking about what they thought and how they felt. And yeah. I, yeah, so I'm, I know I normally put it at the end of, was this worth your time? But I think, I think I've telegraphed here that the book was super worth my time. And so was the movie for sure. You talk about being gun shy, um, huge, huge swing in, uh, in just how gun shy we were from, you know, pre 1911 and after nine, nine to nine right? <laughs> um, in 1999, my reserve unit, we, uh, was asking for volunteers to go to Kosovo and then they ended up canceling that before we actually sent any, at least anyone from my unit there. You know, in Kosovo, it didn't really turn into a ground war for the U.S. Um, I think we provided some airstrikes, and that was about it. And then fast forward to the fall of 2003, you know, okay, we've invaded Afghanistan, we've invaded Iraq, you know, we've uh, we've mission accomplished, you know, the banners up on the aircraft carrier, we all saw it. So by December of 2003, uh, we were planning on invading North Korea. Like... My unit was source, doing logistic sourcing to evade North Korea. Oh, um, my God. You know, and obviously that didn't happen. Thank God, right? Oh my that would have been, you want to talk about a shit show. But, we would be know, talking about the Korean War, just about... <laughs> the other one. <laughs> right, I know, yeah. Um, that was just before they got atomic bombs, I think. So anyway, you want to talk about hubris, right? What a what a swing in you know, going from gun-shy to like, hey, you know what? Let's, yeah, let's go up to the biggest bully and punch him in the nose, right? Wow. That was 17 years ago. Hopefully I don't get in trouble for saying that. No. <laughs> uh, well, you know, for the 
50 people who will listen to this probably already know both of us. In fiction, I usually talk about um, themes and messages and morals. Obviously, this is based on true events. We touched on like the main themes about unit cohesiveness and never leave a man behind. And but I mean, the morals and the messages, you kind of touched on that. <laughs> Take from it what you will, military or not military people. Do you have any final thoughts, anything that you wanted to say that we just didn't get to in our natural conversational progression? A couple of thoughts. So this certainly stood out in the movie, the, uh, the casual racism. You want to talk about that? Mm-hmm. We can totally talk about that. In the movie, of course, one of the critiques of the movie was, you know, how racist it is. But, um, you know, I would argue that that was you know, being portrayed intentionally. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also... I, uh, you know, I'm not going to let, uh, you know, I'm not going to let ourselves off the hook either, right? Yeah, I, um, I actually found yeah, it. Yeah, the casual, the casual, I want to say like non-malicious, uh, you know, you can say all race is malicious, but hear me out here, the casual ignorant race is pervasive. No, I was going to say, I feel like in the book it was a little bit more so, it felt a little tamed down actually for the movie. Because it was, oh, okay. it was those guys and their actual words and their actual thoughts and I think like there's a thing about, I feel like I've read in other things that part of what makes it uh, not easier, but able for people to kill other people is to not see those other people as people. If you dehumanize them, if you think of them as like rats swarming or pests or hordes or zombies and like the way that the guys are thinking about them, you know, is just like this oncoming wave. It's not an oncoming wave of people. It's an oncoming wave of enemy um, who will kill you. Right. And so then that makes it easier to kill them. So. Right. Absolutely. I, I Yeah. You have to think of them as something other. I, I will say that the book definitely had, I mean, obviously a lot of violence, but like, you know, it was graphic in that, you know, a woman spun and fell or a child or a man or this and, and like the guys remembering. And there was a part of me that was like, really, they remember every single, you know, it seems like a lot of details, like a lot of specific details, a man in this color shirt spiraling, you know, and I don't know because I've obviously never been in that. I've read in other things where there's like the fog of war, the fog of battle or whatever, and then people don't really remember. And I kind of wonder now, like, how much of that is choosing to not remember or, you know, or what. But I did find it interesting that they, the guys, they, some of them shot with anger, especially as they started taking heavy casualties. But a lot of them we're trying not to shoot the children and the women, you know, and they, they didn't want to, they wasn't, uh, I'm going to go out and kill as many dark skinned people as possible today. Hoorah. It, it, that wasn't what it was. And so that was, it is very violent and hard to read, but it, um, was not nearly as, God, this is going to sound weird. It wasn't as unsettling as I expected it to be. I don't, I don't know how else to put it, though. I think that you can you can apply, you know, consciously or subconsciously, you apply a certain amount of detachment to that. You know, there's defense mechanisms that are, you know, I think our, our minds have, right? Just like uh, you talk about, you know, there's the fog of war. It's a real thing. Uh, but at the same time, remembering traumatic events and crystal clarity is a real thing. You know, and being different levels of traumatized 
you know, affects different people in different ways. One of my coworkers uh, at a previous job, you know, they, they had incoming mortar fire on the base that he was at. And, you know, he didn't get hurt. Nobody near him got hurt. The rounds didn't land near him. But, you know, somewhere on the base that he was on, there were explosions uh, from incoming enemy fire. And he had nightmares for years after that. You know, there, there's a person that we went to high school with that told me a perfectly calm and detached story about, you know, how he had to kill a child one time to save someone else's life. You know, and I can't imagine anything more horrific than, than having to do that. But, you know, he told this story in a completely detached way. Uh, and actually, same thing with one of my coworkers. Three tours uh, overseas and three times, you know, he had to, you know, kill a very young person. And, you know, he had to, he had to take a lot of medications but uh, he was able to function. So different people are definitely affected in different ways. Um, God, I'm getting just the just chills even just relating those stories because I can't even. My brain is not even going to try to process how terrible that must be. Just these are just some some really kind of again detached notes here. Uh, fun fact: I've ridden in two different military helicopter types. They are all very rough ride. It's kind of realistic that a lot of the Somali militiamen were terrible shots. Um, you know, most poorly trained or untrained people cannot hit a moving target. At one point, you see soldiers uh, firing blanks and not real bullets or not bullets that look real in one of their machine gun belts. Hmm. A little uh, continuity error, I guess. Right? You see a soldier hand off a death letter to a buddy, and that's that's kind of cliche. You see in lots of movies, you know, it was in Saving Private Ryan and all kinds of war movies. You know, he hands off, uh, you know, a, you know, dear mom, dear dad, or a letter to his wife, you know, whatever. You know, I uh, I can tell you a lot of people write those letters, and you know, they'll tell someone about it. Uh, you know, hey, okay, it's in my, you know, it's in my left pocket. Something happens to me, and it's always like, yeah, all right, whatever, you know, it's, it's gonna still be there when you go home next year. But a lot of a lot of guys write those letters, or at least they used to. I don't know if they still do because of you know nowadays everyone has email. <laughs> I learned the hard way not to just put the letter in your pocket though. Your sweat absolutely destroys it. So I had to rewrite mine and put it in a little Ziploc bag. <laughs> the the banalities um, of war. <laughs> yeah, the little behind the scenes details. I thought the movie was pretty accurate to the book um, and a pretty accurate depiction of this, you know, the stories that I've heard. Obviously, I wasn't there. You know, I have no way of knowing what you know, such an intense, such a fierce battle is really like. But you know, from what I understand, it's, it's a faithful depiction. You know, it tries to stay honest for the most part with, you know, again, the questions that it asks, the portrayals of the, you know, the humans, of the experience. Um, you know, I don't know, I guess... Uh, if you had to say, you know, what was, you know, what was their take or what was the point? I don't know if I could tell you, but, uh, you know, it was, it was a good movie, right? You know, there, there are those movies that we watch because they're entertaining, but you won't call them good. Uh, case in point, anything with Dwayne Johnson in it, um, you bet your ass I'm going to watch it. I'm going to love it, but I can't necessarily say it's ever going to win an Oscar, right? Um, <laughs> this wasn't just entertaining. It's, you know, this is a good story. This is a good book. Um, it can be a little, you know, it takes a while to get you, you know, to get you up to speed and pulled into it, but it's a page turner once you get into it. I've I still got my copy around here somewhere. I would put this as um, an important book and an important movie to see. So I don't know if it counts as a classic. I don't, you know, that's whatever. People have different definitions. Definitely not popcorn fun, like you said, but I think it's worth watching. I think it's worth reading, and I think it's actually important. I do. Like I said, I don't think I'll ever want to watch it again, but I'm really glad that I took the time to watch it. And I don't think I'll read the book again, but I 
I actually read it on my Kindle, which is partly why I was having so much trouble because I can't flip back, you know, easily and find things on the fucking Kindle, which I hate, but okay. Um, but I think that this is actually important enough that I think I want to have a physical copy here in the house. Like, I want my daughter to read it someday when she's much, much, much older. And, um, you know, I think Matthew, my husband, uh, might want to read it at some point. I, I, I definitely think it's a book worth having, and I definitely think it's a book worth reading. I think it's important to see the movie, too. So. So thank you, Ryan, for making me suffer through something big and scary and uh, learn something. It was a privilege to participate. Remind me what the other choices were going to be? I don't remember. Was, uh, with the thin red line was one of them, right? <laughs> yeah. I just found it on a list. And you said no. <laughs> Let me tell you, the movie was terrible. Well, I'll have to have you back uh, to talk about Moby Dick. <laughs> Okay. Only if it's the only if it's the Sir Pat Stew version. Very well. There's no other version that I can think of that I would I want to suffer. I don't through. think we can really do the abridged book. I I think we'd have to read the full unabridged book with you know chapter on whale biology and all. So Ryan, if the people who've listened want to email you and tell you that they thank you for your service or that you're awesome or I don't know whatever. Is there a contact? Are you are you on the social medias? I'm on Facebook. I'm already in the same uh, alumni groups and pages as uh, Kalia, mm -hmm. so you can you can find me there. Uh, I guess uh, you can catch me at uh, Ryan Running Rogue on Instagram. Ryan, that's, that's my that's my outdoor adventure Instagram. Gotcha. Okay, very cool. Well, thank you so much for for being here and. Uh... Well, that was cool. Pages and Popcorn Podcast was brought to you today by patrons like you. So to get that warm and fuzzy feeling in the deep pit of your tummy, knowing that you have contributed to keeping art and artists like this out and about and entertaining you as we all sit around our houses in quarantine and try to figure out something to do, go on to Pages and Popcorn Podcast at patreon.com and feel free to sign up for $1 a month or $5. You'll get episodes early you'll get supplemental episodes there might actually be other fun things coming down the pike if i can get organized and uh, thank you so much to our patrons for helping keep the show alive <laughs>